Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. I'm pretty excited about it. It's one of the books that as a young man just made me think and it just stirred me up. And throughout my life, when I hear people and hear their worldviews and their philosophy, it's really common for me to just come back and think, eh, you're just like Ecclesiastes 2 or you're Ecclesiastes 3 and you're one of those people. And nothing is new under the sun. Like Solomon really covers most of the major worldviews. The only one he really doesn't get to is atheism. Because I think in, the, in his era, people just, there weren't people that didn't believe in gods. So he just doesn't really cover that one. But the, the rest of it, the kind of the godless people or people that don't worry about their relationship with God is really similar to that kind of atheistic worldview. In fact, what we covered last Wednesday in Ecclesiastes 7, the lukewarm person or the easygoing or what I would call the Minnesota farmer mentality, no offense to any Minnesota farmers, but just kind of that stoic, life is what it is, there's a season for this, there's a season for that, don't get too excited, don't get too upset, you know, play a little poker when you want to, don't sin too much, don't get too religious or holy because you don't want to stick out in that kind of way. Just kind of that leveled person was the one we saw last. Solomon continues in that line in Ecclesiastes 8 and 9. The problem with, with how we covered 7, so in chapter 7 it was kind of like, here's a worldview, but wait, that's not true. And we kind of looked at the Old and New Testament and how the rest of the Word of God would speak into that issue. The struggle with 8 and 9 is, there's not much that he's saying here that's an actual contrast. So something kind of shifts. He moves from kind of that stoic-minded person into what tonight I'm going to call is the moral person. This is a person that's living a good life. It's not a life or it's not a philosophy that really requires God or a heavenly inspiration to have this worldview. And for me, again, this just makes me think, and I know lots of people that don't have Christ in their life that consider themselves fairly good people. And they live according to a certain wisdom and kind of a code of how to live that is really clear here in 8 and 9 as we read through it tonight. These are my neighbors. But these are people that just kind of live a godly, kind of a good life, but not necessarily pursuing this active, vibrant life in Christ. They're just doing the right thing all the time. And it's really kind of one of those things where for me at least, I'm like, they're not that bad of people. And they'll make arguments like, why do I need to be saved or why do I need to get into this whole Jesus thing that you're into? I'm a pretty good person, right? And it's a tough argument to contrast because they're nice people and they do nice things and they help run the Lions Club and they help keep our foreign legions going and they serve on committees and they do these kinds of things. They're just good citizens kinds of people, right? And we all know these people, right? In that sense, it's kind of a tough thing to get into because i feel like in some ways this is my own sin. This is my own failing. This is the thing where I resonate with this kind of point of view. Um, So it's hard for me to kind of challenge it. Um, I'll do a little of that tonight, but really I want to, I'm going to move pretty quick through eight and nine. um, And uh, I hope that it kind of speaks for itself with that introduction. So uh, let's, let's dig in here and we'll, we'll start in on verse one. 
Who's like a wise man? So we're talking about a moral person or an earthly wise man. And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the sternness of his face is changed. This is where I got the stoic chin thing from the last chapter. Solomon gives us a little cue that there's a little change here when somebody kind of takes on good earthly wisdom. Of course, only Jesus really changes a person, but I think what Solomon's getting at here with the face shining is somebody who's just well-respected in the community, right? An upstanding citizen. Verse 2, I say keep the king's commandment for the sake of your oath to God. Do not be hasty to go from his presence or take your stand for an evil thing, for he does whatever pleases him. It's a wise thing to know that your boss, leaders, the government, have significant power, and if you really want to mess with the government, you're going to probably have some problems with that. If you really want to challenge your boss, you should be willing to lose your job. So stay out of trouble, keep the law, respect this kind of king or authority that you have over you. Even Jesus says, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. There is a thing called earthly authority. Pay your taxes, people, all that kind of thing. Verse 4, the word of God, the word of a king is in the word of it. Where the word of a king is, there is power. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Who keeps his command who will experience nothing harmful? And a wise man's heart discerns both time and judgment. Because for every matter, there is a time and judgment. Though the misery of a man increases greatly, for he does not know what will happen to him. So who can tell when it will occur? This is kind of a... Again, we're talking about a thicker text here where where the word of a king is, there is power. It sounds a lot like verse 2. And what are you doing? And who will say to him, what are you doing? Who challenges people that are in power? And who has that position? The interesting thing, and it made me think a little bit of John the Baptist, um, when he, or I'm sorry, yeah, John the Baptist, when he challenged uh, one of the Roman leaders and critiqued the fact that he was married or not married but he was sleeping with somebody that he shouldn't be and they put his head on a platter at the end of the day i'm really paraphrasing that story but that idea of when you challenge somebody who's an authority there's a quick end to come and that's not necessarily wise in an earthly sense you got to pick your battles a little bit a wise man's heart decides both time and judgment this is again for a good upstanding citizen they have some discernment about what fights to pick when to pick fights you know, who, when you're going to battle with people. As a former middle school teacher and now as a college professor, I run into youthful people all the time. And one of the biggest steps towards maturity for them is know when to pick your battles, right, in your school too, Lynn? Know the fights to pick. There's some fights worth having. There's some fights not worth having. Someone in this world under earthly wisdom that's kind of gained in maturity, you just know when to pick fights. And you know when to just let people do their thing. And people will always do their thing. Most conflict is people doing their thing and other people not wanting them to, right? So that's where most conflict comes in our lives and wise people just somehow navigate around it. And for the most part, it's because they have discernment over both timing and judgment. Verse 6, because for every matter there's a time and a judgment, though the misery of a man increases greatly. So because for every matter there's a time and a judgment, though the misery of a man increases greatly. It's an odd sentence for me. But the best I can do with this to try to draw understanding is because of that thing about judgment, then people tend to get misery. You either get misery by not having time and judgment or you get misery by watching other people make that mistake for people that do have the time and judgment. It takes a lot of our flesh to be graceful with people when we know they're just picking the wrong fights and picking the wrong battles. 
and even having for me as a mantra with college students, don't give them advice unless they ask for it. If they're not wise enough to ask for advice, giving that advice to a college student, this young adult that thinks they know everything, generally it kicks back the wrong way. So when I'm coaching in young faculty and they're like, why won't this person listen to me? It's like, did they ask you for your advice? No. So you got to set up situations where they respect you enough and they actually want to know what you think. And then the doors just open wide and you get a college student that comes in and says, should I get married next year or not? And then you can start asking them questions. Well, what do you think the Word of God says about that? Have you prayed about it? Have you gone through any sort of counseling? Have you talked to your pastor about that? And you can start finding that time in judgment. And then you watch them make all the wrong mistakes and the misery of man increases greatly. And you just see this sort of thing. And I think for Solomon, you're talking about, biblically, the wisest person to walk the earth until Jesus Christ. Imagine how many times he watched people be unwise and what that does to your heart. Even as a believer, when we have heavenly wisdom, we can still be pretty foolish people and have more wisdom than many of the people around us in the world. And you just think, why are you going down that path? And it breaks your heart when people you love do that. Seven, for he knows not what will happen. Who can tell him when it will occur? There's this idea that Solomon presents here, and this is really I'm, I'm pulling from a, a couple commentators that talk about this. For he does not know what will happen. There's kind of this, and who can tell him when it will occur? There's kind of a prison we live in and that we don't know the future. We don't know how things will work or what, what they will do. In some sense, the moral person, the person, again, don't, you don't need godly wisdom to figure this out, but a moral person will come to a great conclusion here towards the end of Ecclesiastes that we really don't know what's coming and where, where things are headed. There's a prison in that. This is one of the reasons why biblical prophecy gets so exciting for believers, is that we start to get some glimpses as to where things are headed. What a relief to know that God's coming back. What a relief to know that we will be judged for our actions. What a relief to know that calling on the name of Jesus Christ, we can have grace in those things. We have some sense of a broad sweeping outline of what's going to happen to our souls in the future. For a moral person or someone living outside of a godly, heavenly wisdom, there's kind of a prison there in that they have no idea. At the best they can hope for is that they don't know and they have to kind of come to terms with that. So people do. Verse 8, no one has the power over the spirit to retain the spirit. No one has the power over their day of death. Again, we're kind of in that same theme here. There is no release from that war. A wickedness will not deliver those who are given to it. And wickedness will not deliver those who are given to it. There's really no escape from this idea that we're going to die. Solomon's already highlighted that in former chapters we've looked at, but just this futility of thinking something's coming. And this puts us in a place where, okay, it could get really depressing outside of God, but for a believer, for, for me, this just, again, it just helps me talk to people I know that are in this place and something we know about them. I remember back in the day, uh, one of the, Greg Boyd, he's a pastor here in the Twin Cities, was talking about how he's going to get a chance to go talk to all the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and this was maybe 15 years ago. And he was pretty excited. He gets to go and do the devotions for all the head military people in the United States. So a week beforehand from the, from the pulpit, he's talking about, what am I going to do and what's this going to look like and what am I going to talk about? And then he realized for a moment, I know something about them that they don't. For those people in the room that are, don't have God, they're actually, there is no release from a war that you have in your soul over the futility of your own death. And I know that about them and they might not even know it about themselves. 
So once he had that thought, he realized what I really need to talk to them about is that you're going to die too. Not just your soldiers, but at some point, everybody dies. And I'm going to start from there with people. And a lot of times, those of you that do evangelism and talk to people, for people that are generally overall good people, it's a great starting point to have a conversation because you know they're at war about that. Either they've dulled themselves and tried to not think about it as much as they can, or they've done some other things. Solomon's going to kind of go through that perspective and build on that a little more. Verse 9, all this I have seen. Another cue that we're still in earthly wisdom and not heavenly wisdom. And I've applied to my heart to every work that is done under the sun. There is a time in which one man rules over another to his own hurt. And then I saw the wicked buried who had come and gone from a place of holiness and they were forgotten in the city where they had, done, where they had so done. This is vanity. Everybody dies. He's still on that theory, that theme of just this idea that you can work hard your whole life and when you die, people forget you even existed. That's the reality. Aren't you glad you came tonight? The idea that it just doesn't matter one way or the other is actually maturity in the world's eyes. It's a place where you come to and you're just like, it just doesn't matter. And to be happy, content, even successful in this life outside of God, you kind of have to come to that place. You have to resolve that. And the only resolution is to ignore it. Right? Earthly wisdom here comes into direct conflict with heavenly wisdom because heavenly wisdom tells us it actually really does matter. Where you go after you die, what the consequences are of your life, it actually matters a lot. So if you're saying, I don't care what happens to me when I die, how foolish is that? It's the height of earthly wisdom and it's the beginning of foolishness. Just this idea that it doesn't matter. Where you're going to go when you die, it does. And you have no control over when you're going to die. God willing, we all survive and get to be together as brothers and sisters for a long time. But I don't know that. I don't know that we're not going to have a car accident leaving this place tonight. We have to kind of pray that in God's will that what's going to happen to us is what's going to happen to us. Many of the great revivals throughout America start with the thought of you're going to die, you have to do something about that. And you could die tonight. What are you going to do about that? And you listen to William Jennings Bryant, you listen to the old Billy Graham stuff, you listen to these great evangelists, they always come back around to that idea. You're going to die. That's the beginning of heavenly wisdom and it's the end of earthly wisdom. It's the transition point in conversation. The idea that Christians care actually defines us. To the world, that's logically implausible. It is not the logical conclusion to care about what happens after you die. The logical conclusion, not knowing what's going to happen, is to say, I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry, enjoy the time with my wife or my husband, and I'm going to be a good, decent person to everyone I know. And that's a, the absolute height of human logic. It's where we need to head outside of heavenly wisdom. But to say, actually, I care more about God and Jesus and serving my king than anything else. I could give up food by fasting. I could give up drinking by fasting, but still doing water. I could give up being merry to suffer martyrdom. I can pass on all your worldly delights because what I really want is the delight of seeing a heart change coming to Christ. It's the opposite, and it's one of those things. Verse 11, because the sentence against an evil work is not exceeding, executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. People generally don't see consequences right away because we don't get sentenced speedily, because we don't get to see our punishment right away. Human beings can go years thinking that what they're doing is okay. 
we can be selfish, we can have attitude with the people around us, and we don't actually see a consequence for that for years. Therefore, the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Therefore, people are going to, what the judges used to say, they're just going to do what's right in their own eyes. And then at that, at that point, it's hard to even argue with a person in that mode because what they're doing is their own self-defined morality. And there's no argument against it. I'm going to be who I want to be. I'm going to dress like I'm going to dress. I'm going to talk like I want to talk. But it's utter foolishness to think that there isn't a consequence for your selfishness. God actually has things he wants of a holy person. And he wants you to live in a righteous kind of way. Actually, I teach psychology over at the college. And there's a word for this. Psychologists call this the personal fable. Everyone constructs for themselves a personal fable about who they are and, and their own sense of good or worth, right? And you can actually talk to people, and there's ways to do interviews with people to pull out this personal fable. It's common amongst middle schoolers and immature people that they think that in their fable, they're the middle of their own story and they're the hero of their own story. As people grow up, you realize you're not the middle of anybody's story. You're part of a community at best, and you're part of God's story at the holiest. That God's doing something, and we just get to be part of it, and what a joy that is. But for young people, they honestly think they're the middle of the world, and we're born that way. It's called sin. And that idea that you're more important than anybody else, it's a form of sin, but it's doesn't get, no, the consequence of that does not get executed speedily. And we don't see the end of that till the end of our days, till we're judged, right? Um, the personal fable also believes, and this is, again, I think it's kind of interesting. It's why I like teaching psychology. With the personal favor, fable, with very immature people, that personal fable is so strong, they actually think they're invulnerable. They don't fear their end. And so for people walking in that kind of place or that existence, they don't even think about their end of days. So, and again, that's part of maturity. The older you get in earthly wisdom, the sooner you shake that attitude. And you realize, no, I'm going to die someday. And then you have to wrestle with that kind of thinking. Verse 12, I'll actually read a little bit here. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times, his days keep going. Yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God and who fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, nor will he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity which occurs on the earth. A vanity occurs in Ecclesiastes in every chapter. So it's just an ongoing theme. Vanity at its core, For if we weren't here a year and a half ago, vanity is the belief that you're more important than other people. It is looking in the mirror and thinking you're awesome. And every one of these worldviews that go in these different directions are you pursuing your own interests instead of the interests of God. And it's vanity. Therefore, there is a vanity which occurs on the earth. There are just men to whom it happens according to the work of the wicked. And again, there are just men, there are wicked men to whom it happens according to the work of the righteous. Again, he's playing off this idea that we aren't immediately going to see the result of our actions. Wicked people live long lives and get rich and wealthy. And there's just and righteous people that die early and too soon and it's a giant tragedy and they, they have calamities in their life. And that is, under worldly wisdom, that doesn't make any sense. Oftentimes we'll have non-believers that'll talk to us when we go through times of trial, when our moms are struggling with their health. They want to see how Christians handle that because we look at the opportunity. Oh, we get to talk about what happens after she dies. 
Or we'll be at a funeral and we'll be celebrating the life of a godly person and earthly wisdom, that doesn't make any sense. You just lost somebody you loved. Why are you joyful about it? And I'm mourning, but they're in heaven. They're done waiting. This pool we get to live in here, it's over for that person. I remember when Steph's dad passed away, he had Lou, Ger- Lou Gehrig's disease, or is that, was it, yeah? It was three years. It was horrible to watch him wither away. It was just horrible. But when he died, man, the family celebrated. You're talking about a godly man that lived a long, wonderful life, had four wonderful daughters. He lived a righteous and a godly life to the best of his ability every one of his days. He was still preaching the gospel to people in the nursing home. And when he passed away and he could use his legs again, and he was renewed, his body, his spirit was restored in the presence of God, he was celebrating and dancing, it, was a, it wasn't that hard of a funeral. I mean, there was a lot of celebration. We were happy for him. It was what I would call a good death. But to the worldly person, there's no such thing as a good death. It's just death. How can you possibly celebrate that? I also said that, the, I, I said that this is also vanity, verse 15. So I commended enjoyment. Go ahead and live, drink, and be merry. Oh, he actually says that. Because a man has nothing better under the sun than to eat, drink, and be merry. That's where I got that from. For this will remain with him in his labor all the days of his life, which God gives him under the sun. And this is how we end up. Eat, drink, be merry, and I would add, then die. And that's life. This is kind of a pitiful philosophy, and we've kind of seen that, and I've made that point a few times. So verse 16, When I applied my heart to know wisdom, and I see the business that is done on earth, even though one sees no sleep day or night, then I saw all the work of God, that a man cannot, work, cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. So I started to allude this before. When you look at everything that's happening on earth, and it's not our story anymore, the real wisdom here is that there is the work of God going on. And that's far more interesting than the work of Sean or the work of you, is that there's something about the work of God that's kind of compelling and interesting. And we can't find out what it is that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. I have all this stuff going on on earth. We, we don't even see a glimpse of it. It's those little windows that open where we go, the Spirit just did something really amazing there. Did you see how that need was just met in the body? And it's kind of delightful. Though a man, dis- man labors to discover it, he will not find it. You can try to figure out the ways of God, but God's ways are above our ways. His, his thoughts are not our thoughts, according to Ezekiel. We can't know God. We can't see what his works are. However, this is altogether the Christian view. Atheists love this verse. Taken out of context, just reread that and look at it out of context. You're never going to know what God is, what he does, or what he says. In context of what we've been learning with Solomon and where we're at, we know he's kind of trying to give us an under-the-sun philosophy that's the height of wisdom. And these last couple chapters of Ecclesiastes, he's really outlining this for us. Not only so we see it as believers, well, let's come back to the context of Solomon. What's Solomon trying to do here? Remember at the very beginning, he was conducting an experiment. He wanted to put one thought on top to the other to come to some grand, wise conclusions without using anything heavenly to do it. And if anyone could do this, it was Solomon. He's writing Ecclesiastes at the end of his life. He's an old man. He's gone through, he's seen this, he's met thousands of people, and he's trying to just lay these things out one thing at a time so we can see all the different worldviews that this world has. In chapter 9, we see under the sun six times. God's view is above the sun, human view is below the sun. So Solomon's experiment to unpack this for us 
has been pretty interesting. I'm going to quick brush through those before we get to chapter 9. He first went through the idea of knowledge, pursuing books and knowledge, and well, I'm skipping the party one. Pursuing party, however, there's kind of some natural consequences to that, like all sorts of things. And then pursuing knowledge, getting lots of smarts, but the end is there's no end to books. There's no end to the knowledge you can get. You'll never arrive anywhere in doing it. It's an endless pursuit. Pleasure. Problem with pleasure, according to Solomon, is you end up hating yourself. You end up doing things that are immoral and disconnecting yourself from any long and lasting relationships. Money. It doesn't satisfy. It actually adds trouble to your life the more you get. Remember when we talked about that? Religion. There's two sides to religion that we've already done in Ecclesiastes. One is the religious fanatic isn't happy because they're constantly trying to get other people to be more religious like they are, and it leads to unhappiness. Or there's there's the hypocritical religious person where they're constantly ashamed of themselves because they pretend to be holy, but they can't stop sinning, and they don't have that. So that doesn't make you happy. Fame, you can work for a good name, Solomon says, and where does that get you? At the end of the day, no one really cares about your big fancy name because as soon as your stardom goes away, nobody remembers you, right? So 100 years goes past. I don't remember who the best pop singer was from 100 years ago, 150 years ago. You know, maybe there's people we still can look them up with the digital internet that we have today, but most people are generally forgotten after their star falls. So even fame doesn't get there. He gets into power and ruling and leadership, and he just talks about what a yeoman's work it actually is, that the worker that labors, the blue-collar worker, actually just gets tired. It's not like something to live for. And the people that has to manage or the people that are in power over those folks, they also just get tired, and it's not something worth living your life for. You can do it either way. He even talks about government. He makes a little, it's just a couple verses back in chapter 5 or 6, somewhere in there. Government doesn't get you much because at the end of the day, governments just keep doing what they're going to do And there's always somebody over somebody over somebody over somebody. And it's just kind of a thing that doesn't change or end. So Solomon comes to all these conclusions. But here we are in the middle of morality. And he comes to the conclusion that it's just vanity too. It doesn't really profit a moral person to be moral because they're going to die anyways. Why not sin? I think it's funny that I get to say that from a pulpit. Go ahead, sin. I'll come back to that point here. And I'm going to really drive it home. Chapter 9, I consider all of this in my heart. So he's coming to some 9, 10, and 11 here. We're coming to some of his conclusions. I considered all of this in my heart so that I could declare it all, that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. People know neither love nor hatred or anything they see before them. This is kind of, we don't know anything. Try not to worry about it. Verse 2, all things come alike to all. One event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good, the clean, the unclean, to him who sacrifices, to him who does not sacrifice, or in our language, those that go to church and those who don't go to church. As is the good, so is the sinner. He who takes an oath, he who fears an oath. This is an evil that's all, that in all that is done under the sun, that one thing happens to everyone. Isn't that a horrible thing in a worldly sense? You do all these good things and you still don't win the lottery. Darn it. But personal fable... Maybe I will win the lottery if, if I, you know. So, truly the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. It doesn't matter which way you go. You're going to die, so just live life. It doesn't make a difference. For Solomon, this is the great evil under the sun. This is a horrible thing. You can't escape death. The end of human wisdom is 
you're going to die, yet Jesus says, he who believes in me will never die. He doesn't agree with this. This isn't the godly or the heavenly wisdom. There's no human path to this revelation. God reveals it to us. What Jesus is saying to us, we don't arrive at through human wisdom because it's not logical. Those of us that are saved, those of you where God has brought your heart to the place where you say, I want to believe in Jesus Christ and follow him with my whole life, you didn't get there because you figured it out. Something in your heart changed. It turned. You know, either when it was five with your parents when they were talking to you about your sin, (laughs) why did you steal that? And you come to this conclusion that you want to serve God instead of being a sinner. Or maybe you were in your teenage years or maybe you were an adult and you've totally turned your path. Maybe you just got saved last year. But the end of the day is that salvation didn't come to you because you figured it out. You saw another believer. You encountered another believer. You had a direct relationship and conversation with God. And you said, I'm going to turn. Lord, I don't know how to do it. I can't even do the turning. I can't even figure that part out. And that's usually for a new Christian, you have to figure that out. You can't dump your own sin. You're just a human. You have to actually pray about your sin and say, God, take this out of my life. I want to work on this. And as soon as that gets out of your life, God shows you another thing. And we keep praying about sin. God, help me get rid of this. Take away the temptation. I can't figure it out. And then the next thing comes along. And every time you start dumping that sin out of your life, You get that much freer. You get to see God's work in your life that much more. You get to be a blessing to those around you. You stop caring about yourself. You start caring about others. And you feel this change. And you look back, and some of us, it's this overnight, bam, you got hit with the Holy Spirit thing. Some of us, we look back five, six years, and we go, I am not the same person I was six years ago. The thing that used to be my sin and my weakness is now what other people are blessed by. Isn't that crazy? But we didn't do that ourselves. God does that in us. For the earthly wisdom, that's a great evil that we can't figure out our own lives. It's the failing of humanity. It kind of sucks to be a human. Dogs don't struggle with this insecurity. They live their life happily. They don't worry about if they're going to die tomorrow or not. Most animals in the animal kingdom do not struggle with this. It's a very human phenomena that we sit and worry about our death. We get anxious, right? And anxiety and fear and worry is not trusting God. But it's perfectly logical in a worldly sense to be anxious, fearful, and worried. You're imprisoned to your own flesh. And we need God to bring us out of it. I think that's a beautiful thought. To me, suddenly my heart starts lifting. Solomon takes us down the dismal path, and I start thinking, but in Christ, this isn't true for me. But in my heart, I know it's true in the earthly sense. I felt this. At one point in my life, I lived this. It was that point right before I got saved where it really hit me. Something's wrong with my humanity. It's not okay. And every great thinker in history has tried to figure it out. Karl Marx, um, Stalin, they all tried to figure this stuff out, right? Freud, Kierkegaard, Nietzsche, they all came to this realization that Sartre, I mean, you look at all the great philosophers and wise people of this world, and they come to this horribly conclusion that life's kind of sucks. And we're stuck in it. And the solution is socialism, or the solution is nihilism, or the solution is humanism, or the solution is this. But at the end of the day, you need a solution because there's actually a problem. But for heavenly wisdom, there's no problem. I don't struggle with this feeling that I'm going to die because I'm not. I actually feel a life in me that I didn't put there. And it's awesome. All right. 
Verse 4, but for him who joined to all the living, there is hope. But for him who is joined to all the living, there is hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. Interesting that the lion is also an image for the lion of Judah, right? For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. We're still in that place. He keeps getting more and more down, and I keep thinking, this is, I am not as down as you are. But what a sad thought to think the dead know nothing, so as long as you're alive, there's still hope that you can figure this out. The living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. So at least you know you're going to die when you're alive, so being alive is better than being dead. Now Solomon's reaching for straws. This is the futile belief of somebody who's just tried. They've, they've built all these wise thoughts on top of thoughts, and now they're getting at this point where it's like, well, okay, we can at least establish that it's better to be alive than dead because dead people don't know things. The memory is forgotten. Some preach then with this, and they take this out of context. Well, look, here the Bible says that you don't know anything after you die that your soul just gets annihilated, you're gone. In context, it's not what Solomon's talking about here. He's talking about, from a worldly sense, under the sun, this is a logical conclusion, right? Luke 16, Jesus, actually being wiser than Solomon, tells this story, and you know this story. And it's in contrast to this idea that you're, when you die, you just disappear. Jesus doesn't seem to think you disappear when you die. Do you know what story I'm going to give you? There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and carried by the, was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. So like Solomon, rich people die, poor people die, we all die. And being in torment in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and he said, the rich man cried, and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus so that he might dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. So clearly after their death, you don't just get annihilated. There's actually desire, want, hunger, thirst, but Abraham said, son, I like how he does that, son, Abraham gets to call everybody son, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus received evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. Something happens after we die, according to Jesus. You can just not believe Jesus. Hard to do when you have a relationship with him, and you talk to him, and he responds, and you see his word and it speaks into your life, that's a little tougher. But to the world, it's foolish. Why would we even think that Jesus would have a relationship with us? He's dead. He's annihilated. He's gone. But for the Christians, especially the ones that were there, he didn't die. He wasn't gone. And he said he'll be with them and he'll send the Holy Spirit to be with us till the end of the day, until the end of the days. He says, when two or more are gathered in your name, I'll be there too. So for those of us that are believers... At first, something in us changes where we can start to believe that, but then we actually get to see it. The beautiful part about faith, hope, and love, and that love remains, is that once we're dead, we don't need faith or hope anymore. It's irrelevant. Once we're with God, the only thing that remains is love. And it's a beautiful thought for a Christian. Verse 6, Also their love, their hatred, and their envy have now perished. Nevermore will they have a share in anything done under the sun. (laughs) <laughs> and I said I was going to come back to this. 
If that's the case, live it up, party. The closest you'll ever get to heaven outside of heavenly wisdom and a relationship with God, you're living it right now. This is your heaven. So live it up. Have fun. If you have family or friends or members that think they're going to find joy somewhere on this planet, encourage them. You dig in and I'll check back in a year and tell me how's it going. You think that's going to make you happier? Go for it, buddy. Sister, friend, do it. At least go all in. Don't be the lukewarm person. Be full on for your sin because this is the end of your, this is it. This is life for you. And in your belief system, you're going to die and it's all over. In my belief system, you're going to die. You're going to burn in hell. This is the closest you'll ever get to heaven right now. It's flipped for the Christian. This is the closest we ever get to hell. We'll never get closer to hell than we are right now. This is the sucky life that we have to live before our next one. I think that's amazing. So I read Solomon and my heart starts to lift and I can't tell you why because it's not my logic that does it. I can't wait for the next thing. Go eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart for God's already accepted your works. He's already seeing what you do. Let your garments be white. Dress up nice. Let your head not lack for oil. Put on your perfume, your makeup, your party clothes. Go do it. Dress up, have fun, have a good front for everyone around you. Live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life, which he's given you under the sun. Your days of vanity, for that's your portion in life, in the labor you perform under the sun. This is it. Love your spouse, love your friends, go fishing as much as you can. Do whatever you need to do to go party and have fun. Get to every sporting event you can, every concert you can. Ring up your charge cards, people, because when you're dead, you're dead. They go away. I just got to say that from a pulpit, right? It doesn't matter. Go have fun. What a great message for the worldly wisdom person. But as a believer, something's wrong with that idea. There's no control there. There's no order, and for those that have tried that path, it doesn't work. And we come all the way back to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Go party, but it doesn't work. It still leaves your heart empty. It leaves your body wore out and sore. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. There's no work or device or wisdom or grave where you're going. (laughs) If you're going to do something, do it all in. Verse 11, I returned, I saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor favor to the men of skill, but time and chance happen to everyone. There's no advantage in being good at things. For man also does not know his time, like a fish taken in a cruel net, like birds caught in a snare, so the sons of men are snared in an evil time when it falls upon them suddenly. We're caught. We're stuck in this body. We're stuck in this life. There's no escape. This is the wisdom I've seen under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with a few men in it, and a great king came up against it, besieged it, and built great snares around it. Now there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. He came up with a smart strategy, and bam, that city got saved. Thanks for the poor man. That was good wisdom. Yet nobody remembered the poor man. And then I said, wisdom's better than strength. Nevertheless, That poor man's wisdom is despised. His words aren't heard. Words of the city spoken quietly should be heard rather than the shout of a ruler of fools. It's an interesting passage. 
For the believer, Christ is our wisdom. It does save us. It's that poor man, that quiet voice, the still small voice behind our ear that actually gets listened to. The sad part for Solomon is he didn't know this. He didn't have the New Testament. He didn't have the good news of Jesus Christ. It's why they called it good news. This whole Jewish group of people were reading this as little 15-year-old kids learning Ecclesiastes and this great wisdom, and then the good news happened. Wait a sec, there's an answer to this. It seems great to Solomon. He recognizes that there's an amazing influence that a wise person can have. I think it's really interesting that he says one wise person. And even in worldly wisdom, he comes to this point where it's amazing to him how one poor wise person can have an amazing influence on people, right? And we look throughout history and we see these instances where one wise good person made a huge difference on entire countries and nations. Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr., right? We've seen these influential people under the sun that have had these great impacts, yet they're assassinated, they're killed right? The community seems to do something to fight those good people and fight against them. Jesus was was killed on a cross. He was a poor, wise person that influenced all of human history, yet he was despised. Verse 18, and we'll close with this, wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner does so much good. In the same way that he said, wickedness get just uh, get the treatment of the righteous and righteous get the treatment of the wicked and there's this balance and nothing matters he's kind of doing the same thing here there's a poor man's wisdom that gets despised despised and their word is not heard yet they can save whole cities but here's this other thing even though wisdom's better than the weapon of war you can have one sinner do a ton of damage you can have one particularly evil people that destroys the morality of a whole country that brings down a generation of kids Right? You can have one role model that does something that really does some massive damage. And he sees this under the sun too. Throughout the Bible we see this. Adam's sin, Adam and Eve's sin, brought down all of humanity. Right? You look at uh, Occam's sin causing Israel to have a defeat in, in this line of victories they were having, but he wanted to take something for himself. And one man's sin hurt the whole nation. Rehoboam split the whole nation of Israel. Ananias and Sapphira brought sin into the early church, and we never saw the kinds of Holy Spirit movements that were happening prior to those two. They brought sin into the church, and before that, the church was pretty righteous. Every person in this room has sinned, and that one sin's not only destroyed you, it's probably hurt people around you. Because part of what our sin in is usually an offense to somebody else. We have our own sins. We can't just blame Adam and Eve. We have our own sins that we've committed too. That could be really depressing if it wasn't for the hope of Jesus Christ. Where Jesus says, I'll take my sins upon me and you can take my yoke upon you and my yoke is light and it's easy to bear. In a yoke, you have two oxen that team up and if you got Jesus on the other side of your yoke, he's carrying all the weight. We kind of just get to ride along. It's pretty easy to bear. But he says, take up my cross daily and follow me. Wait a second, a cross is not a yoke. They're both made of wood. Those are very different things, right? If we take up Christ and we understand that on that cross he took our sins, we don't have to have those sins anymore. We're released from those things. How hopeless Solomon must have felt not knowing the full story of human history. 
And what a sad thing for a wise person to come to all these conclusions. Because frankly, there isn't anything really inaccurate about Ecclesiastes. It's just the accuracy of the philosophy of these worldviews. And he knows them so well that you can read through all of human history, every wise person that ever lived, and you can attach them to Ecclesiastes and say, there's Buddha, there's Confucius, there's uh, Rolling Stones, and, there's, and you can just start, here's Donald Trump, and you can start finding the different worldviews and plopping them in throughout Ecclesiastes. There's nothing new. We've seen them all. And at this point in Ecclesiastes, Solomon's coming to these conclusions where he's like, yeah, but I'm still not satisfied. I think I understand how this world works and it makes sense, but I'm still lost. The good news is we have the full revelation of the gospel. Solomon only had the law and under the law we're condemned. This is Steph, by the way. I'm not going to take credit for this. Thanks, Steph. The law just condemns us. So under God's law, you can look at that law and realize I've failed. I haven't met the Ten Commandments. And in some way, shape, or form, even Jesus kind of pushed that point home with his Jewish people and he said, it's not good enough just that you haven't killed. It's that you don't even say raka to somebody, which is like a nasty word, I think, right? It's like being mad at someone. It's not good enough that you just didn't commit adultery. If you even look at somebody like that, you're guilty of it in your heart. And so Jesus made those points. The law just condemns us, and that's all Solomon had. But Jesus also pointed out that it's, the law is there so that we have a judging system. And when he becomes our attorney, when he becomes our advocate, and when he says, no, 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 that punishment, do that person, I took upon myself. I will step in for this person, and I'll take that sin upon me. That's Jesus' offer to us. I'll take it. It's a conditional offer. I hate to break it to you. You have to give up your life and say it's yours, Jesus. And then when you become Jesus' property, he'll account for you come that judgment time under the law. It's the big magic law. I like the Narnia series because they say there's the deeper law. And Aslan kind of you know, does it in Aslan's kind of thing. But that's the deeper law, is that Jesus has every right as king and authority on this earth to claim any one of us as his own if we serve him. And he asks us and he says, I'm, I'm opening the door. Come be, my, be on my team. Let me open your eyes to see this heavenly kingdom. And we're believers. We're here on a Wednesday night. I hope this is a good reminder that Jesus loves you. You don't have to live under the law. And I hope when you read Ecclesiastes, like me, you get pretty juiced up because you know people that think this. And you know people that you want to talk to and say, I just read about you in Ecclesiastes, right? I hope, moreover, that when we think through this and we understand the philosophies of this world, we become better able to not just preach at people, but to come alongside those philosophies and say, yeah, you know, you should live all in for what you think you have. We can actually work with those philosophies to become people that have relationship with nonbelievers and understand them and get inside their heads. It's as hard for them to understand us as it is for us to understand them, but we get the book of Ecclesiastes. We get like this manual on how to think like they think, and we can become students of that and go, okay, I understand where you're coming from with this. Solomon told me about what you think, and we can actually work with people and talk with people. And it's a beautiful thing when you see people start moving through these stages in Ecclesiastes and getting closer and closer to earthly wisdom and leading that moral life and then realizing it's not enough. Under the law, I'm not moral enough. And coming to that same futility that Solomon comes to in chapter 8 and 9. Jesus breaks all the rules of earthly wisdom and he leaves us in a place of hope because we're not condemned under the law anymore. We've been redeemed under the law. In that sense, if you could join me in a word of prayer.
Lord, thank you so much. Thank you for your redeeming love, for your sacrifice on the cross. Lord, you gave yourself so that you could claim us. Lord, we just are so grateful for that. What a humbling thought, because Lord, in our hearts, we are sinners. We are daily thinking more about ourselves than about you. We can't escape this life, and we can't escape this flesh. And in in the wisdom that we can muster in our own brain, even with the help of Solomon, Lord, we come to such a futile ending that there's just nothing here to live for. So, Lord, we choose to live for you. We're not giving up that much when we give up our own lives because our own lives are futile, pointless, and vain. So, Lord, for what it's worth, you can have it. I want a full life in you. Lord, we pray as a body, we just want to live in you. We want to trust you. We want to know what's coming Uh, because you're telling us where to move, how to move. And when you say go left, we go left. When you say go right, we go right. Lord, we follow you. And in that, Lord, we're going to lose our life, but you're going to save it. Lord, we don't have much worth saving in our lives. So we offer it to you. We want your great adventure. Lord, we know you're up to something on this earth, and we just want to see glimpses of what you're doing. And Lord, if we can be a part of it, we can be part of your spirit, bringing people into joy, redemption, and freedom. We would love that. Lord, our lives are slavery. We're in a prison to our own sin. We're in a prison to our own thoughts. Heck, we're in a prison just in that we think about ourselves all the time. Lord, break us free from that. Give us freedom to love you, to be free from our own sin, our own guilt. Lord, give us freedom to just have joy. How many of us, Lord, walk through life just in a frump all the time because we're tired from work, we're tired from the people we have to deal with, we're tired of everyone around us. Lord, help us to have joy and to have love for everyone around us. Help us to have joy and just enjoy that we can have a job and that we get to go to work tomorrow, Lord, and we get to minister to the people you've put in front of us. Help us to be part of your work on this earth, to take joy in everything that we encounter. What an awesome opportunity. And Lord, we can't muster it ourselves. On our own strength, we're miserable. On your strength, we have joy. It's that simple. So Lord, help us to learn from Solomon. He's the wisest person in the world, but the end of his wisdom is just the beginning of our heavenly wisdom that you've shared with us. Help us to just keep moving forward. Help us to grow in you. Help us to support one another and help each other to live holy and righteous lives. Thank you for tonight. Bless us and help us to drive safely home. In Jesus' name we pray. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.